The following message is from Hope Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. More information about Hope Church can be found at hopechurchonline.com. The first century Roman Empire was one of the most unique societies to ever exist on planet Earth. It was one of, if not the most influential society to have ever existed. All other societies, all other empires in the world looked at that time to the influence of the Roman Empire in the first century to shape so much of their own society. Whether it was the area of government or finance, entertainment or the arts or the field of education, the Roman Empire had its fingerprints literally all over the world. In addition to its influence, the Roman Empire in the first century was a melting pot of diversity. The Romans were an unusually diverse culture. It was a very multicultural place to live. Because of their conquests of other civilizations and other lands, it created this unbelievable sense of diversity, and yet there was a unity all within the rule of Rome. The Roman Empire had one of the most advanced systems of communication and transit the world had ever known. Up until that point in history, things like connectedness within the world had not really existed. But the Roman Empire, through both language and then communication and transportation systems, both in the ways of roads and highways and waterways that they built and developed, created a global connectivity that allowed for their influence to rapidly go to the ends of the earth. Rome was a very pluralistic society. By pluralistic, I mean that it was a place where there were a lot of belief systems that crossed paths. Predominantly, the Roman Empire was a polytheistic religion, meaning there was a worship of many gods. You go into any major city in the Roman Empire and you would find statues or idols erected to a diverse number of gods and you would find equally as many temples set aside for you to go and worship the multiplicity of gods that they had established in the Roman Empire. On top of all of that, they had the Greek philosophies that for many became a religion and a way of life. And and what trumped all of that was the idea of emperor worship that existed in the Roman period where the Caesar was to be worshipped as a god. The Roman society was also one that was dominated by sexuality. The Roman civilization promoted sexuality as a sign of prosperity. It was even taught in many of their religious temples. Prostitution in the Roman civilization was legal, public, and widespread, as well as encouraged. It was a society that was inundated with violence. It was ritualized. And public violence was even a favorite form of 
entertainment. So think about the Roman civilization. Influential, melting pot of diversity, most advanced systems of communication and transit the world had ever known, very pluralistic, dominated by sexuality, inundated with violence. Does it sound like anything that you might be familiar with today? Now, here's what's interesting about that. That is the very culture into which the church of Jesus Christ was born. And not just born. That is the very culture into which the church of Jesus Christ exploded and expanded in an incredible way. But you can imagine in that type of culture, the church was not well received into that kind of a society. A society that was dominated by pluralism, that was inundated with violence, that celebrated sexuality. That society, when the church was born in that society, there in the city of Jerusalem, which was a part of the Roman Empire at this time, when the church was born and began to explode, society was not very accepting of this new way of life that became known as Christianity. As a matter of fact, the term Christian was even a derogatory term that they used to ridicule and criticize those that claimed to be followers of Jesus. It got so severe. Look in Acts chapter 8. Look on the screen at Acts chapter 8 verse 1. We're not going to spend much time here, but I want you to see these verses. Here's what happened. It says, and on that day... A great persecution began. Now, it's talking about the day when Stephen was first put to death as the first Christian who was murdered for preaching the gospel. They got so angry at Stephen, they gathered up stones and they literally threw rocks at him until they stoned him to death. And then the persecution began to really spread. It said it began in the church in Jerusalem, and they, the Christians, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. At this point in history, there were approximately 100,000 believers there in Jerusalem. This persecution began to come on them, and the Bible says they began to scatter throughout the Roman Empire, Christians running for their lives. Look what it goes on to say. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, there's a name we become familiar with in the Bible. Saul began ravaging the church. It's a very strong Greek word. It's a word that the Greeks would use to describe when a wild animal got loose in somebody's garden and laid waste to the garden. That's the term ravaging. It was really used to describe a, a wild boar that got in somebody's vineyard and just with his tusk just tore the vineyard apart. The Bible says, here's the church. It's born into this culture. It's a spiritual minority. It begins to face persecution, and now Saul leads people to literally begin to ravage the church. Entering house to house, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. From that point, Following Jesus became an extremely persecuted way to live your life in the first century Roman Empire. 
John MacArthur describes it this way. Christians were encased in wax and burned at the stake to light Nero's gardens. They were crucified and thrown to wild beasts. Though the official persecution apparently was confined to the vicinity of Rome, attacks on Christians undoubtedly spread unchecked by authorities to other parts of the empire. So the church is born into Jerusalem, begins to explode in this very non-Christian society. Persecution becomes a reality. Now I want you to fast forward with me 30 years. We're 30 years from that text of Scripture we just read in Acts chapter 8. The Christians have now been scattered. Even in their scattering, they're preaching the gospel. The church is continuing to explode and expand. And now all over the Roman Empire in cities like Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi. The church is beginning to be born and believers are embracing, people are embracing the gospel, becoming believers and churches are being planted in these cities and in these regions. But everywhere they're planted, there is this hostility. And the hostility is so great that by AD 64, if you're a historian or know any history at all from this period, you know that Nero burned Rome basically to the ground. And in burning Rome to the ground, he chose as his scapegoat Christians. And he blamed Christians for the burning of Rome that he did himself because he knew there was enough widespread distaste for this Christian movement that if he would blame it on them, hopefully it would stamp out Christianity completely. So that's the period that we're in. 30 years from the birth of the church, it's about A.D. 64, Christians are a spiritual minority in a world that is grossly unaccepting of their worldview. In a world that is vehemently attempting to end their way of life. And a man by the name of Simon Peter, a leader of this movement called Christianity, A leader that is very well known. You could go to any city, anywhere in the region, and you could mention the name Simon Peter. Most of them had never met him, but they'd heard about him. They'd heard about his preaching of the gospel. They've heard about his bold stand for Jesus. They've heard about him being in prison. They've heard of how God's using him. Simon Peter is looking at this play out in sections of the Roman Empire. And Peter becomes heartbroken. And he sits down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to write a letter that is to be distributed from city to city and village to village throughout a major region of the Roman Empire where they were living in this incredible circumstance. And he sits down and he writes this letter and you and I have it in our Bibles called First, Peter. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to the book of First Peter. This morning, as a family of faith, we are beginning a verse-by-verse journey for the next several months through 
this wonderful letter of 1 Peter. And I hope that helps shape the context for you of why he wrote this letter. This letter is really a letter of hope in hard times. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Here are these Christians living in these remote cities in the Roman Empire alienated, isolated, huddling together in many ways in fear. of. Can you imagine what it must have been like when the runner came into town and said, I have a letter. Get everybody together. It's a letter from Peter. And they would huddle together in somebody's house or they would get together in a cave somewhere and they would sit, and I can only imagine in my mind's eye that, that many of them would sit and they would close their eyes and they would lean in as they tried to, to literally let their heart wrap around every word. These were not men and women who were walking around with leather-bound copies of the Bible. These were not men and women who could open their phone and flip to their favorite verse of the day. They didn't have that privilege. And hear the Word of God through the apostle Peter has come. And this is not just a, a word from some preacher. This is a word from a man who literally for three years walked with Jesus. We've got a letter from Peter who walked with Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to begin by just reading the first two verses this morning. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, know this. As you read those terms, those are not cities. Those are provinces. And what you're really reading there is the circular route. If you had a map and you looked at it, it would start Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What you're reading is the route. This letter was a circular letter. It was written by Peter, given to a runner, and he went through the region and he ran taking this letter from province to province, city to city, village to village. So Peter's writing to them and he's telling them, I'm sending this letter. And look what he says. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. If that's all he had written. At this point their cups are just overflowing. Having heard from God. R.C. Sproul says of this letter, listen to what he said. A letter from such a man, 
from such a man as this is a treasure for the church. His letter beyond the value of his eyewitness testimony and his intimate friendship with Jesus carries with it the weight of the divine inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. So here's what that means. This letter, we're not just reading somebody else's mail. Because this letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God for the church. The Spirit of God knew that today in 2014, guess what? We would be a church of Jesus Christ who is living in an increasingly hostile spiritual environment. We are living in a culture today where in our nation of America, for generations, we have enjoyed being a spiritual majority. But let me tell you something. It's time for you to wake up if you hadn't realized it already. We are no longer a spiritual majority as Christians in America. We are the spiritual minority. That's going to change the way we have to engage with our culture. It's going to change the way we have to preach the gospel. It doesn't change the gospel. But we've been able with a spirit of arrogance to to build our facilities and say, you come to us. Listen to me. They're not coming anymore like that. We live in a world where we are the spiritual minority. And there is so much in this letter that is so good for us as the church of Jesus Christ in 2014 to sink our teeth into as we understand How to honor Jesus and live in a culture that is radically different than the worldview God's called us to. America is now the fourth largest lost nation on planet earth. Only China, India, and Indonesia have more lost people than the United States of America. Why are we so shocked? When legal issues, political issues, social issues, moral issues don't reflect who we are as Christians. Why are we so shocked? Fourth largest lost nation on planet earth. Our city, Las Vegas, is 92% lost. It means 92% of the people in our city do not profess evangelical Christianity. We live in a world that is rapidly Changing And this letter for us, like it was to these believers, is a letter of hope in hard times. Sometimes, sometimes the hard times that we're in are persecution. And listen, church, in America, we just will get ready. Those days are coming when we will, maybe not to the degree that they saw it in Rome, but we already sense a growing hostility towards Christianity, a biblical worldview. Letter of hope. Sometimes the hard times are not persecution. Sometimes the hard times are just adversity, trials, difficulty. Peter writes about that, and he gives us encouragement in this letter. So that's where we're headed as we dig into this letter of 1 Peter for the next several months. Now, with that, out of the first two verses, I want to share with you a couple of foundational truths. Peter opens, and really what we just read is just his greeting. It's just, it's just kind of the, hey, here's who the letter's from. Let me, let me tell you hello. But in that, Peter unpacks two very deep convictions. 
deep convictions about who we are as believers. That Listen to me. If you don't understand these two convictions, as society begins to change, your world is going to be rocked. But if you understand these two deep convictions, you can have peace in the midst of it. Let me give them to you. Here's the first one. I belong to Him. Say that with me out loud. One, two, three. I belong to Him. Peter opens this letter by saying, We are God's chosen people. Don't lose sight of that in the midst of a changing Society. When you are unpacking Scripture, particularly the New Testament text of Scripture, if you're a teacher or preacher and you're wanting to really dig in and exposit a text of Scripture, you have to begin to, to really dig into some of the original language and understanding it. And, and when, you're, when you're really trying to understand the original language, the New Testament was written in, Greek, in the Greek language. The Greek language, when you're reading a, a phrase, a paragraph, a sentence in the Greek language, two things are very important. One of them is verbs. And the Greek language, the way that they spoke in the Greco-Roman world, the, the language was verb-heavy. And the verbs oftentimes would, would have wrapped up in them entire sentences and entire phrases. The second thing that is important in, in reading the Greek language is word order. The order in which they put the words didn't always make the sentence sound good, but it communicated the significance of what they were saying. So they would put the most significant thoughts first and let everything else follow, even if it didn't make perfect sense as you laid it out. It's interesting as you read the first two verses, although in English it looks like there are a whole lot of verbs, there's really not any. Except the last sentence, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. That's the only verb. So if we're going to look to unpack the significance of the verbs in these verses, there aren't any. So you have to lean on word order. How did they say what they say? And it's very interesting because when you read the, the, the way that English translators have translated these verses, we've, we've gotten away a little bit and missed some of the significance of the word order. Because if you just translated this literally, and I did it this week, if you translate it literally, here's the way that first verse reads. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen who reside as aliens scattered. That's where he starts. Now, if you look in our, the way we've translated it, we, we move that part about being chosen way down towards the middle of the paragraph. But in the Greek construction, it's the first. Peter says, hey, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's who I'm writing to. The chosen. The chosen who reside as aliens who are scattered. He makes a big deal about this idea. Don't lose sight of the fact you are the chosen ones of God. The word chosen, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, means selected or marked for favor or privilege. In the, the Greek language, the word chosen means those selected. And it's a term that's used often in the Bible to refer to the people of God. Wayne Grudem is a great theologian. Look what he said about it. Look at it on the screen. Wayne Grudem said this term, chosen, refers to our privileged status before God. Ones whom the king of the universe has chosen to be his own people, to benefit from his protection and to inhabit 
his heavenly kingdom. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them? Here they are, a spiritual minority. Everything's going opposite of the what they're being taught as Christ followers. They're being persecuted. They're being looked down on. They're being called crazy. They're trying to be stamped out. Peter writes them a letter and says, Hey, don't forget, you're the chosen ones of God. You remember what it was like back in elementary school? I don't know about you, but my favorite subject in elementary school, middle school was PE. I love PE, right? I couldn't wait for PE. And, and where we grew up in Alabama playing in, in PE, it typically meant if you went outside, there was going to be some kind of sport played, you know, baseball, football, kickball, t-ball, wiffle ball, something. You were going to go outside. And inevitably, the PE teacher would do what? He'd pick two team captains. Everybody else lines up. And he says, you pick, Right? And there's everybody standing there thinking, oh, this is awful, right? I don't want to be standing the last one. But, but do you remember, I hope this doesn't bring up serious childhood memories for some of you. <laughs> because as I look out, some of you probably weren't chosen. And I apologize for this illustration. <laughs> but if you were chosen, all right, you remember how good it felt to be chosen? Remember how good it felt when, when you were the one that, that they said, sometimes you got chosen first. And man, if you got chosen first, that was a great feeling, right? When you got picked, it was like, whoo, I get to move over here to this side. It was a great feeling being chosen. Here's what Peter says. He's writing to them that are facing incredible hardship, incredible difficulty. And he says, don't forget who you are. You have been chosen, not by a team captain. You have been chosen by God himself. Chosen. Peter, Peter would use that term again a little later in the letter. Well, we'll get there in a few. We'll get there. Chapter two. In chapter 2, verse 9, look what he says. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. Man, he's just piling it on now, right? A people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's just reminding them of who they are. I belong to him. And all of that verbiage that he's using there in chapter 2 and verse 9 would have evoked memories of, of the language that was used by God concerning his Old Testament people, the nation of Israel. And Peter was reminding them, just as sure as God sovereignly chose a people unto himself in the Old Testament and faithfully provided for and protected them, God in his sovereignty has chosen a New Testament people called his church, and he will be faithful to us. Here are these people that are beaten down, and he opens up by saying, chosen. Listen, when times get hard, I can remember I belong to him. I am his, and he is mine. And don't miss this. Ultimately, that is because God in his sovereign grace has set his heart on me. That is not because of anything that I've done. It's because of everything that he has done that I am his and he is mine. Let me show it to you. Paul wrote about it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the 
gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look at that phrase, how he opens it. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that. What is the that? That whole first phrase. For by grace through faith you've been saved. The whole thing is because of him. Here's what I'm telling you today. I'm standing here today as a blood-bought child of the Father, not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that he's done. And when the day gets difficult, I can know that my God in eternity past has set his heart on me and redeemed me and chosen me for himself. Let me read you the way Martin Lloyd-Jones described it. Listen to what he said. We are Christians solely and entirely and only because of the grace of God. The whole essence of the New Testament is that we have no sort or kind of right whatsoever to salvation. That the whole glory of salvation is that though we deserve nothing but punishment and hell and banishment out of the sight of God to all eternity, yet God of his own love and grace and wondrous mercy has granted us this salvation. Now that is the entire meaning of this term, grace. Grace. There may be days when things get difficult. There may be days and there will be days when things get dark. There will be days when the road gets hard. But I belong to him who sits on the throne of the universe. And I have that standing today, not because of anything that I've done. I have that standing because he set his heart on me. I am a child of the king. My security and my comfort rest not in the reality that I have chosen him, but it rests in the reality that he has chosen me. I belong. To him. They were pretty pumped up just after the first word, right? Peter and Apostle Jesus Christ, chosen. I know it doesn't feel like it right now. He's writing, I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it looks like you've forgotten, not chosen. But I want to remind you, you haven't been forgotten. You've been chosen. Explain that. I can't. Except with one word. Grace. I belong to him. Here's the second deep conviction he gave him. I don't belong here. Listen, if you don't wrap your heart around these two deep convictions, you're not going to understand some stuff. I belong to him. I don't belong here. The second word in the word order construction is the word that we translate with the phrase who reside as aliens. In the Greek language, it's one word. So here's what he tells them. I'm writing you this letter who are chosen. You belong to him. But you also, aliens, you don't belong here. The word that we translate as alien is a word that means sojourner or stranger. And it's not simply referring to one that's passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down. 
It's a temporary resident in a foreign place. And he's not speaking to them about their physical location because although some of them had been scattered out of Jerusalem, that was now an event that had happened 30 years earlier. Now where we are in the story, many of these recipients of this letter were, were residents of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. But they, they'd grown up there their whole lives. They were born there. They were going to die there. It was their physical home. But here's what he's reminding them. It's not your spiritual home. Paul said it this way. Look at it in Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. You ever feel like you don't fit in here as a follower of Jesus? Listen, if your answer to that question is not yes, you need to do some introspection. Because this world's not our home. We are temporary residents in a foreign place. A week from Monday, I'm getting on an airplane to travel to Southeast Asia to be training national leaders over there. I love the mission God's called us to. I don't particularly like the trip part of it. I love God's global mission. I love seeing peoples of every tribe, tongue, people, nation engage with the gospel. I don't like airplanes. I don't like the thought of getting on an airplane and spending 27 hours in a seat built for somebody that I can put in my pocket. I don't like airplanes. I don't like sleeping in a strange bed where you have to cover yourself in deet so that you don't get carried off by mosquitoes. I don't like eating food that looks back at me. I don't like not being able to turn the air conditioning down. But when I go on these trips... You know what keeps me encouraged? That I'm coming home. Church, we don't belong here. This ain't home. There's going to be some things that we're not comfortable with. There's going to be some stuff that doesn't sit good. As a follower of Jesus, it's imperative that you understand you belong to Him, but it's equally important you understand you don't belong here. I hear a lot of believers today, and it, 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 it burdens me. I hear a lot of Christians today talk about the world with a growing sense of worry and anxiety. Oh, where are we headed? Oh, what's happening? They get so upset about the decline of society or the erosion of morality, and they're so distraught over losing the American way of life. Listen, I love America. I thank God for the nation that He allowed me to be born in. But listen to me this is not my home. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. We don't wrap our hearts and our heads around that. 
as things begin to change, we're going to lose our way. I belong to Him. I don't belong here. My citizenship is in heaven from which I eagerly await my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're we're headed home one day. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, I got it. I belong to Him. I don't belong here. But right now I'm here. So what now? Well, he tells us in verse 2. I'll give you three phrases. Verse 2, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God. What's that describing? That whole first sentence, the fact that I'm chosen, I'm a stranger, I belong to him, I don't belong here. He said, that's according to the foreknowledge of God. Here's what that means. While I'm here, I know God has a plan. I belong to him. I don't belong here. But, but listen, while I'm here, I know God has a plan. How do I know that? Because he said it. He said everything that you're facing right now is according to the foreknowledge of God. That word foreknowledge means to know beforehand. Here's again what Grudem says about it. Look at it on the screen. He said this phrase implies that their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environments in Pontus, Galatia, etc. were all known by God before the world began. All came about in accordance with his foreknowledge and thus we may conclude all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. Here's what he said. I belong to him. I don't belong here. But while I'm here, I can know that God set his heart on me before the world began and established a plan for my life. Whatever is happening around me, as dark as it may get, as much as it may seem like everything is coming apart at the seams, here's what I can know while I'm here. God has a plan. It's all according to the foreknowledge of God. Jeremiah 29, 11 says it this way. I gave it to you in the message translation paraphrase. Look what he says. It's God speaking. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you. Not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. Here's what Peter's saying to us. I belong to him. I don't belong here. But while I'm here, my father has a plan. And listen, it's a good plan. It's a good plan. On the good days, he has a plan. On the bad days, he has a plan. On the days it seems everything is falling apart, he has a plan. I belong to him he chose me. He knows where I am. He established that plan. Let me, let me show you how established this plan is. Look what the psalmist said. Psalm 139. I love these verses. The psalmist said, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Wrap your head around that. Then look what he says. And in your book were all written 
the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You want to talk about an earthquake? <laughs> That'll shake you up. Look what he said. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. While I'm here, I know God has a plan. Here's the second thing you know why you're here. While I'm here, I know the Holy Spirit is at work in all things to accomplish that plan. Look back at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God... By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Again, those phrases are modifying that entire description in verse 1. The fact that I'm chosen of God. The fact that I'm now scattered living as an alien in a temporary land. He says all of that's according to the plan of God. And it's by... Greek scholar E.G. Selwyn says it means in the sphere of... It's in the sphere of the Spirit's sanctifying work. Here's what that means. The Spirit is at work in every circumstance in my life, setting me apart for the fulfillment of God's plan. How encouraging must that have been? Here are these people who are living in a society where they're the spiritual majority, or excuse me, the spiritual minority, their lives are being ripped apart. They don't know what's going to happen. They get a letter from Peter, and Peter says, hey, let me remind you, you are chosen of God. You belong to him, and you have been scattered now temporarily. You're living in a place that's not your spiritual home, but you need to understand this. As you're there, know God has a plan, and the spirit of the living God is at work in every detail of your life orchestrating that plan that God's established before the world ever began. As believers, they are having the breath of God just breathed into them to encourage them. Here's the point. While I'm here, there's nothing happening in my life that is not filtered through the sovereign plan of my loving Father and under the direct control of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? There's not one thing, not one thing that's in your life today, not one thing that is not filtered through the sovereign plan of your heavenly Father who loves you and under the direct control of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. I know what you're thinking. Well, I sure don't see it. And that's where faith comes in. Where by faith, you take God at his word, that he is who he said he is, that you are to him who he said you are, and that he is doing what he said he'll do. By faith, we wrap our hearts around who he is. That's why Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Our goal then should be to see everything in life, everything, as an opportunity to deepen and broaden our faith in God. Here's the final point. While I'm here, I know my daily pursuit is Christ in me and through me. Did you hear what he said? You're chosen. You're scattered. You're aliens. 
It's according to the plan of God. That plan's being carried out by the Spirit. Then look what it said. Here's what it results in. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Here's what he's saying. God has a plan. The Spirit is at work to accomplish that plan. And it ultimately results in my life demonstrating obedience to Jesus. Now, if you're like me, here's what's kind of rattling around in my brain as I hear that. Yeah, but man, I blow it a lot. Doesn't that mess it up? (laughs) And be sprinkled with his blood. That phrase almost seems out of place in that sentence. According to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It's interesting. When you study that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there are only three times when the people were physically sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. Only three times. One of them was at the initiation of the covenant when the law was given at Mount Sinai. Moses, after the sacrifice, sprinkled it over the people. That was a once-for-all initiation of the covenant. A second time was when Aaron and his family were set aside as the priests. A once-for-all situation. They were sprinkled with the blood. There's only one expression of being sprinkled with the blood that is an ongoing expression in the sacrificial system. You know what it was? It was when someone was infected with some type of a disease like leprosy. And then they'd been cleansed, they'd been healed. And they go back to the priest and the priest sprinkles them with with the blood of the sacrifice as a sign of the cleansing that is available through the covenant. Two of the times they were sprinkled with blood, it was a once-for-all deal. But this one time, it was an ongoing practice. And I think the reason it's added is here, here, here's here's the implication. As you and I, in submission to the Holy Spirit of God, embrace the plan of the Father and pursue Christ daily, even when we blow it, We get the opportunity to just be sprinkled with his blood. To be washed. And that's why he then closes with this sentence. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Now this is important. That is not in the active voice as a verb. The active means that I do something. It's the subject doing. It's in the passive voice. The passive voice means the subject is receiving the action. May grace and peace. There's not anything I can do to get the grace and peace. Here's all I can do. Just receive it. Just receive what he's graciously offered because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I belong to him. I don't belong here. But while I'm here, I know God has a plan. I know the spirits at work in everything to accomplish that plan. And I know that my pursuit today is Christ in me and through me. And even when I blow it, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Let's pray.
Lord, as we dig into this letter that you have given us, Lord, may you speak divine truth into our lives. God, may you wake us up. May you shake us up for your glory. As we sit here in the stillness of this moment, we're about to stand and sing a song of worship. When we do, we're going to have some of our pastors here at the front. It's an opportunity for us to respond to what God has spoken through His Word. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You say, what's my response today as a non-Christian? Let me tell you what your response is. To realize that everything in your life has led you to this moment when you realize before the foundation of the world God set his heart on you. And that everything in your life has led you to this moment today where you can respond in faith believing that God loves you and that through Jesus you can be forgiven of your sin and be given by grace a relationship with God. For Christians today, the questions are simple. Have you embraced God's plan? Are you fighting against it? Have you accepted where you are as God's plan? And are you trusting the Spirit of God moment by moment to orchestrate the events and circumstances in your life to accomplish His plan? Are you pursuing Christ today? Thank you for listening to this message from Hope Church. We would love to connect with you, so be sure to follow us on our social networks by searching Hope Church LV.